and welcome to episode 70 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger and I'm very excited to be getting this interview to you with Archibald winner Tony Costa. As most of you probably know, I'm an Archibald tragic, so you can imagine my excitement when I had the privilege of being part of the media pack for the announcement a few weeks ago at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I briefly spoke with Tony about his stunning painting of artist Lindy Lee on that day, and you can see that video on the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. But luckily enough for me, he also said yes to this in-depth interview. Tony says winning the Archibald makes the invisible artist visible, but you wouldn't have called him invisible before he won the prize a few weeks ago, certainly not in the Australian art world. He's been painting for over 50 years, and in addition to the Archibald, has won several other awards, including the Paddington Art Prize for Landscape Painting, and has been shortlisted another three times in the Archibald, as well as in the Doug Moran, the Wynn, the Sulman, the Kilgower, and the list goes on. Tony's whole practice is about trapping energy, and I felt a large part of his process was guided by his interest in Eastern philosophies. His methods are neither traditional nor predictable, and I found our conversation incredibly interesting and enjoyable with a good dose of humour thrown in. We met in his wonderful Sydney studio, and all the paintings we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. Our conversation starts off when Tony was 13 years old, when his high school art teacher, Brother Neville, took him and a group of other students plein air painting on Sydney's Hawkesbury River. I just remember myself standing in front of uh, what is now the Hawkesbury River. It was then, but I had no idea where I was or what I was doing. He just said, paint that. I thought, OK, well, that's a simple instruction. So I got out my little piece of masonite uh, and mm. um, which was primed with um, undercoat. I just reversed it because it had texture and I started painting this picture. And about an hour later, I had an image and I looked down at it and I thought, this is magic. But I also noticed that I had a lot of paint left over on my palette. Mm. And I thought, what am I going to do with that paint? And uh, having come from a family that had very little money, I thought, I can't waste that. So I scraped it up with a bit of, um, I scraped it up with one of my palette knives that I had and applied it to the rooftops of all the building. And I remember him screaming. I thought he'd trod on a nail or something. He said, you've ruined the painting and I'm going to tell your mother. I thought, I don't care who you tell. So anyway, when we got home, he knocked on the door and he said, oh, Mrs. Costa, your son did a nice little painting today, but he ruined it at the end by applying all this paint, as if my mother would understand what he was saying. And she just said, oh, good, good. And, and he thought, well, now I'm disgusted because now you've got your mother saying that whatever you're doing is OK. And uh, <laughs> so he walked away. And I think that was the last time he took me out to landscape painting. But prior to that, I, my father used to look after a building in the city surrounded by solicitors and all types of professions. He was the caretaker of the building. And on weekends, he used to like going out and shooting rabbits because it's what he did in Sicily on the island. Yeah. And... Um, very tentatively, I was allowed. It was always um, a difficult thing between my parents whether I was going to be allowed to, to go on these hunting trips with my father. I was only 10 or mm. 11. Mm. But the thing I remember from it was we would always build a, a campfire at the end of the night. So apart from the glow, what I remember is eucalyptus uh, burning in this fire and the smell was just so incredibly intoxicating for a young boy. We slept in the back of a car, mm. so that was all very bohemian. But it was just being immersed in the landscape, which I just loved roaming mm. around and jumping over sticks and collecting rocks and um, fishing rabbits out of burrows. And, and being with your dad. And being with dad, he was great fun. Yeah. So I fished with him and I hunted with him and that was my introduction to the landscape. So did you do art at school? Well, I stayed at Christian Brothers to year 10 and then from there I had to move because they didn't offer year 11 and 12 and I went to De La Salle in Asheville. And I remember there was only one other student who was interested in art and they couldn't justify getting a teacher. So I did my uh -huh. 11 a year and 12 doing geography instead, but I really wanted to do painting and I couldn't. So that was okay because at the back of my mind I'd had a taste of it at 13 and now I'm 18, so five years had elapsed and it was always there at the back of my mind that I wanted to do it. I was a little frustrated that I couldn't do it at school, but that wasn't going to stop me. But, you know, it's interesting because you didn't 
you then did law after school. Well, that was my mother's idea. Okay. It wasn't mine. She and just liked ironing shirts and seeing me in pinstripe suits. So I kept her happy for two and a half years. <laughs> I thought I'll do it. It's killing me, but I'll do it. Right. So I had a job at the district courts in yeah. Macquarie Street, yeah. working as an article clerk to a barrister, Brian Berkeley. I remember his name. And, uh, and then I kept thinking, I really want to paint. So mm. I thought, I'll just fail a few exams and then get out of law. <laughs> Life's too short. So I remember uh, I came home and, and now I was 20. And I said to mum, I really need to make a decision. She was at the sink washing. And without turning, she said, follow your heart. But I actually thought she said, follow your art. So I thought, why? Well, I had no idea it was going to be that simple. But it wouldn't have mattered. Heart, art, what's the difference? But yeah, because she yeah. said art, or I thought she said art, I thought, great. So I literally So she went gave in, you permission, basically. She gave me the green light. Yeah. I thought, great. Yeah. So I went into the uh, office on Monday morning. I said, Brian, I'm retiring. Uh, not retiring. <laughs> yes, I'm 20. I'm over this. I said, I'm getting out of uh, law altogether. I'm mm. going to paint. Well, he looked at me in total horror and he said, you're nuts. And I said, you're probably right. But, <laughs> <laughs> and looking back, he was. <laughs> but I said, look, I'm just so drawn by this idea of painting, the whole magical act of creating something that I want to give it a go. So I had heard about Julian Ashton down at the Rocks. I enrolled there and I started drawing plaster casts like everybody does, mm. understanding form and tone and then eventually migrating upstairs to life model drawing. That mm. was beautiful. And this was, so this was like the 79, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, late 70s, yeah, yeah, it would have been 79. And and just for, I mean, we've mentioned Julian Ashton on the podcast before, but it's a classical, traditional sort of school. Yeah, very. Yeah. Yeah. But I felt quite restless. I thought, yeah, well, that's very nice. I can draw the model and I can render a pot, but what else? So Mm. I had heard that there was a fellow just in the street behind us called Desiderius Orban, a Hungarian painter. And I'll never forget the first question he asked me was, where have you come from? And I said, um... Julian Ashton. He said, right, well, just forget everything you've learnt. <laughs> I thought, what? I was now mid-early 20s. Yeah. I thought, oh, no, I can't cope. So I took myself overseas. Oh, wait and... a second. Why did he say that? Well, because he thought that um, any... He was very interested in Zen. That was the first time I'd ever heard of the word Zen. And Zen stands for absolute freedom. So anything restricting, uh, any, any ritual, any, anything that's binding and restricting is, is um, it's something that Zen is the complete antithesis of. Mm. So he thought that if you've had that much training, you need now, now to unlearn all that and find out who Tony is. But I didn't understand what he was saying, so mm. I panicked. Because you're a bit too young. Well, yeah, I hadn't, maybe. I, hadn't been, I couldn't get my head around what he had just said because you've got one school saying do this, and he says, no, no, don't do that, just do the exact opposite. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe I need 12 months to digest that. Yeah, so I took myself yeah. overseas and looked at all the great art and hadn't quite understood what he was saying. But I thought, well, if I need to sort of work in a different way because Orban thinks that I should... I'll look into it. So I did, and I started reading books on Indian philosophy and, and Chinese philosophy. And it's sort of Eastern philosophy I found quite appealing. It was very liberating. It was the complete opposite of what Julian Ashton was saying. So it was all about finding the inner self and the inner, the inner energy of subjects, um, all the sort of things that I was sort of beginning to become interested in. Mm. And if Orban had said things like, you know, it took me a long time. He himself found it difficult to understand why certain paintings were great and others weren't. Yeah. So he goes through this phase of trying to work out what is great art, what makes a great painting, and how do you get there? So I went to as many museums and as many studios as I possibly could. Mm. Um, Europe was absolutely wonderful and uh, and certainly, um, you know, the old saying that uh, travel broadens your horizons... It certainly brought in mind. I'd seen mm. so much good art that I came back and thought, well, I really need to educate myself because up until then I was just fiddling around and doing my thing. So I enrolled at uh, the City Art Institute in, in the mid-'80s and uh, I met other artists my own age, but what was really thrilling was that I was meeting people that I had read about and aspired mm, to. That and must really, have been amazing. It was. It was, it was absolutely mind-expanding and, and thrilling. So you had... Kevin Connor, who was taking drawing, mm. Fred Cress, who was doing an evening class with John Fur Smith, Colin Lansley, who was working in the corner, Sid Ball was there as well, Rodney Milgate was the dean at the time. Mm. So it was this absolute um, melting pot, 
this great big soup of seven giants, in my mind, combining to, to sort of direct and instruct and suggest. No one ever said, I think you should do it this way, but they all said, what about this and have you thought about that? I think you spent a lot of time in the library there as well, mm. I read somewhere. Mm. What, uh, because we're talking pre-internet, so we're talking, you know, books, books are huge. Yeah. What sort of, do you remember what books you were interested oh, yeah. in or what artists you were really interested well, I was looking, in? I was looking very closely at uh, um, Ian Fairweather, uh, Fred Williams, the German Expressionists, mm. Neo-Expressionism in Italy, which was happening in the late 80s, and I was painting in the late 80s. In, in, in fact, in 1987, I had my last exhibition based on uh, the mines in Kalgoorlie, and I was reading about a whole group of Italians known as the Neo-Expressionists, or the whole movement was called the trans Avangardia. and you had Mimo Palladino, Francesco Clementi, Enzo Gucci, and Santrochia. And they were painting about uh, Italian landscape, uh, mythology and history, but they were doing it with paint. So conceptualism had had an opportunity and hard edge painting had, had moved through the 60s and the 70s. And here was a brand new group of artists saying, well, let's get back to the joy of painting and applying paint to canvas. Well, I think there was another pivotal development for you in the 80s. And that was something that happened when one of your paintings was hanging in Roberta Bell's gallery in Berrima. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So after I, I showed an exhibition of my Kalgoorlie pictures at Barry Stearns at 12 Mary Place, I had made, I think, about $10,000. And I knew deep down there was no way I could live on $10,000 or build a studio with it. Mm. So I got together with my young sister and I negotiated a lease in the State Bank building and uh, out of the blue, we built a small business out of a concrete cube. It was just an empty shop mm. and we called it French Twist. And the whole idea was that, uh, well, the twist was we were selling Mexican food. But, <laughs> but uh, while I was running the business, I got a phone call from Roberta from the Bell Gallery. Uh, she said, we tried to get Robert Hughes to judge the Master Builders uh, Prize. We couldn't get him. But there's another art critic who's come out to Australia to judge the prize. But while he's here, he's also looking around Sydney and other parts of Australia uh, to nominate someone to go back to do a, a workshop in, in uh, New York. And uh, he would like to meet you. He's seen one of your gouaches on paper and he would like to meet you. And she said, can you come down on Sunday? And I said, no, I can't because um, I've got a wedding to go to. And she said, Tony, unless it's your own wedding... <laughs> you might have to cancel. He really wants to meet you. Wow. I said, oh, okay, I get it. So he's pretty important. She says, yep, you think, <laughs> I think you should really come down. Anyway, I met Walter Darby Bannard, who was a critic and a painter himself uh, in New York, you know, very well respected. He judged an art prize. He liked what I was doing. So he said, Tony, I've seen your work. Bring down a portfolio as well. That was the other thing Roberta said, bring a portfolio of your work. And I had mm. 12 or 15 images of paintings that I had recently completed. He said, yep. I like what you're doing. Send the slides over and we'll let you know whether you got in. And about three weeks later, I got a, a letter saying, congratulations, get yourself on a plane. Um, we'll pay for you to, um, to be here and uh, for two weeks. And there'll be 29 other artists from around the world. Yeah. So that's called the Triangle Artist Workshop in, yeah, New, in New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was very well. I mean, it's folded since, mm. but uh, about half a dozen artists from Australia have been to the workshop. But when I went there, on the very last day of the workshop, uh, Clement Greenberg stepped out of his stretch limousine and walked around the, the cow barns talking about each other's work. And it was just a very... Well, he's, pretty, he's a famous sort of art critic, isn't he? That's absolutely a, famous. Yeah. He put Jackson Pollock and, and Motherwell and de Kooning and Rothko on the map. He was the great uh, champion of abstract expressionism. Yeah. So yeah, That must have been weird having him look at your work. What did he say? Well, there, there was another fellow alongside him. His name was George Hoffman, not the painter. And uh, my painting was sitting on the floor of the, of the, of the studio. And um, this fellow said to him, don't you think it's a bit grey? <laughs> and and uh, Greenberg... What was the painting of, do you remember? I do. It was the interior of the barn and people working in the barn. And it was oh. a very, very limited palette. Yeah. And gouache has a tendency to go quite deep and you can't really get those shifts, which is why eventually I stopped using it. But that's another story. Yeah. And Clement Greenberg looked at it and he said, so what? It works, doesn't it? 
I thought, oh, you beauty, I love you. <laughs> they were like music to your ears. Oh, it was. It was a, no, it was more, it was a symphony, <laughs> a whole symphony. I thought, what did you just say? Could you just repeat that, Clem? <laughs> I've never forgotten those words. Well, I want to talk about your landscape painting because that is such a huge part of your practice. So we're going to jump forward now to 2014. You won the Paddington Art Prize, which is a prestigious art prize in Australia for landscape painting. Did winning that prize have an impact on your career at all at that point? Well, I think you know, a lot, lot more people found out about me because that's one of the things that a prize can do. It can make you uh, incredibly visible. I mean, that's what the Archibald has done. You go from being invisible to visible. Mm. I talk about painting the invisible and making that visible, but prizes make the artist visible. <laughs> you know, artists can't do that without a prize. You can have an exhibition and there might be 200 people that show up and that's very nice. But when you get 150,000 people see the Archibald and then another 50,000 when it goes on national tour, you can only dream about those numbers. It yeah. just doesn't happen. So yeah. prizes are really important. I think it's important not to be defined by a prize, but they certainly matter and I'm not diminishing their importance, um, but it's also important not to be defined by them. So when I won the Paddington Art Prize, uh, again, it was a wonderful surprise. <laughs> I love quoting the Dutch painter, uh, Bram van Velder, who says, I live in a state of perpetual astonishment. I can imagine him getting up in the morning and having breakfast and then getting a phone call from the art gallery in, in Holland and saying, oh, we'd like to do a retrospective of your work and then dropping his fork and thinking, oh, I wasn't anticipating that. Um, it's a lovely way to live, but you've got to ex drop all expectations. Yeah. Because ultimately, if you expect nothing, you already have everything. It's a Taoist idea. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So drop all expectations. Because the risk is you'll die from anxiety. Yeah. So all you but have does to... Does that mean have low expectations? No, no, have no expectations. You can be ambitious about your work because that's what it's all about. Mm. Good, strong paintings, the best of your kind, you know, in the kind of art that you're making. So if you're an expressionist, the best expressive painting you can make. If you're a naive artist, the best naive painting you can make. If you're doing something realistically, photorealism, the best photorealist picture you can make. That's where the focus should be, on the craft and, and making something the strongest possible thing you could make. It should never be about selling. It should never be about winning a prize. Um, it's just about studio outcomes, and the that's where the focus lies. Mm. And being single-minded about that and not being distracted by all the other stuff, because there are plenty of distractions. There's also mm. plenty of rejection. Mm. So you need to be very strong and know why you do it. And if you do it because you love it, which is the only reason you should do anything, uh, then you're on the right track. I suppose the... the, the um, what was the your question? <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about low expectations or oh. no expectations. But I think the problem is, though, if you do win a prize, you then get all this, uh, these accolades and you get, you get all this attention. Mm. And then it's human nature then to want that again, isn't it? No, I don't want anything. I, just, I only want to produce good, strong paintings. The, the paintings speak for themselves. If they're strong and if they resonate with people, that's fantastic. But I can't possibly begin to entertain another prize or another compliment. It's really a... Well, I paint for myself. That's mm. the first thing. Mm. So uh, I'll go back to what I was saying earlier. I'm not diminishing the, the, the worth of a prize. They're very important. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm only as good as the next painting. And, mm. you know, I need to... So getting back to expectations, the only expectation I have is to create another strong painting. Mm. I'm not talking about lowering my expectations now that I've won something I can afford to sit back. The expectations... As you get older, I had this conversation with John Peart, and I said to him, John, as you get older, does it get easier or does it get harder? And he paused and he said, I actually think it gets harder. And I scratched my head and I thought, well, surely it should get easier. But he gave me a very good answer and it made sense. He said, it gets harder because you expect more of yourself. Mm. So once upon a time, if you thought that was okay mm. at 55 or at 65 or at 75, mm. it's no longer okay because you're demanding more of yourself. So the expectations become high. The benchmark becomes a lot harder to reach. But Is that, um, Does that mean you discard a lot of more paintings? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it's also important not to sabotage yourself. Um, so if that's the best you could do on Monday, but suddenly you can do something a bit better on Saturday, it just means that you're moving. So 
there's an old Chinese proverb, don't be afraid of moving slowly, but just be afraid of not moving at all. <laughs> <laughs> so speed, slow speed is okay. Mm. But no speed um, means that you're not pushing it. Mm. Maybe you don't want to push it. Mm. I suppose also another thing is not looking too far ahead. Just... No, the next 10 minutes is probably as far as I, I, I look ahead. <laughs> Any further and I start getting confused. Well, I'm going to go back to 2014 again, where we're talking about the Patagonia Prize, because I did want to talk about the painting that you won that prize with. Yeah. And that was um, Fallen Tree, Port Hacking River, Royal National Park. And that was, we were talking about gouache, and that was a gouache on paper. And that was, it's an excellent example of your landscape work. And also, there's another great, actually, I just saw the other day another great example of your work in um, the Salon de Refusée at S.H. Irvine. That is a great painting as well. And that's also in the Royal National Park. So it's obviously mm. a place that you're interested in. I am, yeah. I love the National Park. It's, it's big. It's vast and there are many little pockets where I can go and hide. Mm. <laughs> it's, by the way, it's in the south, it's sort of outskirts of, the southern, of southern Sydney. Yeah. yeah, it's 15 minutes from my front gate. Yeah. And uh, it's just wonderful. It's quiet. It's rugged. It's, it's got everything. And uh, I keep getting drawn back to the place. I've travelled around the country extensively but the national park has got uh, such variety i mean I, I could spend my entire life in that park and never move from it mm. i probably won't but for the time being i'm happy going back because there are many more areas that i i want to discover and explore you mm. can take a boat and go around the hacking river and i know it's absolutely and throw divine. an anchor out every every five minutes and do a drawing oh definitely um, it's got those cliffs and everything yeah and those those sort of rugged areas yeah it's fantastic There's but this this painting that were the fallen tree port yep. hacking painting that well as it suggests there is a fallen tree in yeah. in that so there's the diagonal sort of uh, lines um but there are other trees and branches around it and and lots of varied marks of greens yellows and browns loosely painted can you take me through the process of how you ultimately would paint a picture like this. Do you start plein air? Like, I mean, obviously mm. you start on plein air. What would that look like? Well, I start everything with my direct contact with the landscape. So I'll take out some coloured pencils and some compressed charcoal. And I use compressed charcoal because it doesn't fall, you know, off the sheet like a piece of charcoal would. So compressed charcoal means that it's a much denser medium and I can put down a mark and it sits there. It doesn't mm. suddenly fly away in a bit of wind. Mm. So I like that about compressed uh, charcoal, which is what I use for the Lindy portrait. Um, so then when I do, you know, when I get the bones of the, of the drawing, and you're right, the fallen tree and that diagonal was the thing that attracted me in the first place. I thought, that's a wonderful diagonal juxtaposed against the, the round structures of, the, of those rocks. I then thought, um, I make some colour notations with coloured pencil and then I take that information back to the studio because I'm essentially a studio painter. I'm really not interested in external light in the way that Monet was. I create my own light. And for that matter, I'm not even interested in external reality because I create my own reality in the studio. But I use those drawings as a springboard for the work that I do in the studio. And when I saw that angle, I was genuinely excited about it. Um, mm. So I, d I did that drawing there in Audley. Can I just ask you quickly, yep. with, you say coloured pencils. Yep. Why would you use coloured pencils over, say, like a soft pastel or a pastel or something like that? Because a pencil is quite um, it's like a thin line, you know. Uh, is yeah. there any reason you prefer that? Well, the coloured pencil just sits there. It doesn't move around like a pastel would and flake. and okay. So it's very permanent, and I like that. Geoffrey Smart uses... We used to use a lot of um, coloured pencil in his drawings. Mm. Um, so would you have a wide range of coloured pencils? Oh, I've got hundreds. I've got t oh, 15 okay. yellows, 27 reds, oh, right. 65 blues. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think my partner says that I suffer from um, fear of not having enough pencils <laughs> or one of them breaking, and then I've only got 64 left instead of 65. <laughs> So I, I have bunches of, of pencil because oh, so I don't stand really... there and sharpen them. I just grab another one that's the right oh, colour and okay. put it in. So that notation, colour notation yeah. is really important to you or is it just to give you a gist of it? Yeah, it's really just to drop a little hint. Yeah. It doesn't really matter ultimately if a tree's blue or pink or yeah. red. It's, it's about trapping energy. That's mm. what my whole practice is all about. And it doesn't matter whether I'm painting a tree or a human. Everything has an energy. Trees are alive. If you cut into one and turn it into a table, even after it becomes a table, the timber is still moving. It's still alive. 
it shrinks and it expands. You can see the pores in the timber. And um, it's alive. It's responding. Mm. So uh, it's the life force in the landscape that I'm after. Mm. And so you bring that drawing back to the back to the studio and and how closely do you feel that you have to I mean do you do you stick closely to that to that drawing no not at all because while I'm working there are all sorts of things that happen I think it's called artistic license (laughs) and you make a lot of stuff up of course and again it's it's what the painting wants it's not what I want it's what the painting wants and if you give into that if you enter the world of nothingness that's that's where the magic uh, happens Mm. What do you mean? Well, what I mean is that if you're creating something, you've never seen it before in your entire life. That painting is, has never existed. You're creating something from scratch. So it's quite thrilling to throw everything at it and, and be surprised. And so being surprised means that I keep it entertaining for me, but I also keep it entertaining for the audience because they've never seen it before. I've never seen it before. So I can't have a I don't, I don't have any, any prescription or any theory of what the painting's going to look like. I'm quite happy to be surprised by it. Mm. And also one, a, a very distinctive thing in your work is the use of line. And we were talking about that when mm. we were in the house looking at some beautiful paintings of yours. Can you talk to me a little bit about the power of that and how important it is in your work? Well, in all of my work, the other thing I'm interested in is rhythm. And so line gives you the opportunity to lasso a head or a tree, you, you're actually making the whole thing go from being, um, well, a fluffy collar on a shirt to a very def- clearly defined collar on a shirt. So if mm. I want that definition, I have to resort to a line to say to you, this is where the collar begins and this is where the collar ends. Mm. So line um, gives me the opportunity to define an ear or a pair of glasses on somebody's face but I use a line to fracture the surface so it excites, you know, it creates excitement in, in a whole area of colour. But it also delineates a form, a shape. Mm, mm. Um, but the other thing it does is I, I use the line and I follow the rhythm uh, while I'm working. I work on a flat surface. So there are m- hundreds and hundreds of lines crisscrossing all over the, the painting. I might start off with, I mean, I don't count them, but let's just assume there are 60 lines. And mm. when I finish the painting, there's only 23 left. So I eliminate a lot of those lines. But it's a way of summarising my subject. And also I'm not mm. interested in volume. I'm only interested in, in um, suggesting somebody's hair or suggesting somebody's face. Mm. So I use the line to, to get away from solids, which is something that Ian Fairweather said. And I love that idea that you can still describe a shape, but you don't have to render a shape. You don't yeah. have to create that 3D quality because it's not what you want. You, you're after something else. So the line um, is used as a, as a summary or as, or as a suggestion. Yeah, and so it's a much flatter effect in yeah. that way. Yeah. Or extremely flat. Yeah. But I'm, I'm only interested in compressed space, shallow space, because by doing that, it forces me to concentrate on the rhythm. Mm. If I start thinking about perspective and volume and getting it right, then I, I lose my concentration. So I can bring my concentration back to the rhythm. And also, if I'm working with line, I work from the gut rather than my head. And if I'm working on a flat surface, I have to somehow find a way of bypassing my brain because that's where the ego lives. (laughs) Yeah, right. And also, you know, to suspend judgment. So I'm all the time trying to distance myself from any thought process. And the only way I found that to be possible is to use my hands which means I don't get distracted by detail. Mm. So there's enough information there. We know that that person's wearing a set of glasses and he's got two eyes, and that's all the information you need. Or if I'm painting a flower, a couple of smudges might be all you need to suggest that that's a flower. So I'm meeting the viewer halfway. You have to do some of the work and think, well, that is a flower or it's a suggestion of a flower. If I start spelling it out, I'll need brushes because I need to put in the detail yeah. and the volume and all that. Well, that. well, that's one of the most fascinating things about your work and the thing that I was most surprised at when I was speaking to you at the art gallery on the day of the announcement was that you use your, your fingers mm. um, and with it, you said you use surgical, you wear surgical gloves and use your fingers. Yeah. Um, what do you, what is it about that method that you feel conveys your, your sort of message better than, say, a brush? I mean, you probably just said that in a way, mm. but um, what, 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 
do you, what appeals to you the most about it? I think it gets to the heart of the subject and it comes from my heart rather than my head. Uh, in a way, I'm working like a sophisticated peasant, you know, scratching around in the soil with a stick. Is that part of it that, you, in a way, well, like a stick, you know, using your fingers, you haven't got 100% control over what that That's mark right. is going to be? That's right. Yeah. It's like giving in and, and just see what happens. At the same time, I have to be prepared to destroy paintings that don't work. There's a lot of risk factor involved in working like that. Mm. Of course, you've got more control if you're using a brush, but it's not the type of painting I want to make. So it doesn't suit my temperament or my personality. I'm too impatient. So, yeah, so speed is part of it as well. Speed is part of it, yeah. It's, uh, I always say that my hand is one millisecond ahead of my brain. Which is a good place to be, I suppose. For me it is. I mean, some people would panic. But, to do, <laughs> but this, gets into, this gets into a little bit of what I ask a lot of my guests is about how, how they get into the flow of painting, into that zone. Do you find, I mean, that sounds like, if, for it being a millisecond ahead of your brain, it sounds like you're in the flow when you're doing that. Yeah. So is that a pretty, like, is that an easy space for you to get into? It is now because I've, uh, I've adopted certain ways of thinking about work and producing work and I can only work that way. But if I was having this conversation with a 20-year-old, I think it, it would take him or her a long time to arrive at that place unless they genuinely felt that that's the way they wanted to paint and aspired to that way of working. So a lot of people say to me, I would love to paint like you, but I can't. But that's because you have to take a position and you have to somehow evolve as a painter. A creative artist will find two things, a way of working and a palette because we, we, we all go into the same shops and we all buy the same coloured tubes of paint. There are only so many colours available but it's what you do with them and the combination of the colours that ends up being your palette and your language because mm. style is the way you speak in paint. Yep. So um, it takes a long time. I don't believe, I mean, someone might be able to imitate the way I work, but they can't work the way I do because I'm the only one on the planet who thinks the way I do. Yeah. And that's the beauty of art because everybody comes to it from so many different angles and you yeah. can't imitate that. And you also were talking about painting flat. Yeah. And we're sitting right next to this amazing... Um, machine, well it's not a machine, it's a contraption, which is in essentially a hospital bed. That's right. Uh, which is your, you don't use an easel obviously. No. Can you, so how does this work? Well it's plugged into a 240 volt and it's remotely controlled. So yeah. if I'm working on a large canvas and I want a better view of it, I need to lower the height of the table. But if I'm working on paper, I raise the height of the, uh, of the bed so that I can, um, well it doesn't have to be that low. Yeah. Paper's a lot smaller. Or sometimes I work directly on the floor, but mostly I work on this, uh, on this hospital bed. Mm. So I can lay out my palette, which is a, just a sheet of glass with a sheet of white paper underneath it. Mm. Uh, oh, and there's also, I should explain that there is a large piece of, um, well, is that sort of plywood on top of the bed? So it's not as if it's just the hospital bed. It's no, no, well, I've, I've got a okay. solid uh, piece of MDF board that sits on top of the bed just to provide a platform, and then the canvas sits on top of that again. Um, and it's on wheels and, you know, you, the space, I mean, it's not a huge space. It's, it's comfortable, but it's not massive. And so I need to make the, it, the space needs to be flexible because mm. I sometimes work on paper. And if you're working with oil, there's oil paint all over that. So I change the boards from oils to, to, to watercolour boards. And um, it's the one table and it's the one surface that I use, but I interchange the surfaces so that, you know, when I'm working on paper, it's a different surface. Yeah, and it's great because it's on wheels that can be moved around. Yeah. So, and what is it about working flat that appeals to you? Well, if you're working with paper and, and uh, you're working with acrylics or, in my case, vinyl, which is still a water-based medium, it means that when you lay down a colour, it doesn't run off your page if you're, you know, have it pinned to an easel vertically the puddles will sit on that page. Not that there are big puddles, but if there is a slight puddle, it's not going to go anywhere. So that's yeah. the advantage of working flat on, on a table like that with uh, water watercolour or gouache or vinyl. But when I'm working with oils, the advantage is that I'm really following the rhythms in, in, the, in the painting and um, just getting involved with creating, creating a work of art. And so mm -hmm. what happens is the object and in this case, it's Lindy Lee. I call her my object. 
becomes less important mm. and what becomes the most important thing is to create a work of art. It has to have unity and it has to have um, invention. Mm. Um, but above all, it has to feel like Lindy. And if it feels like Lindy and it's, it's a strong work of art, then my job is done. And, and you were saying that you can work either you can work at the other side of the table so that she's sort of upside down as well. Yeah, it, it sort of... Um, uh, inverting the painting or being on the other side of the painting gives you a different reading of the picture mm. and uh, that can be equally um, rewarding. Yeah. Uh, the whole... The, the big idea behind having it flat is that I suspend all judgement. Yeah. Well, I suppose you can't sort of start saying to yourself, oh, is that, the, is that perspective right or is that proportion right as easily? Do you think in those terms? Well, I don't think. So <laughs> <laughs> um, suspending judgment means that you, you're not making those decisions. The only decisions you're making, and again, you know, my hand is moving at one millisecond ahead of my brain. So my brain is constantly catching up with my hand. And so um, uh, the painting is just evolving before me with very little dictation from, from my head. In fact, there is no dict. It's purely spontaneous and purely instinctive. And if you're creating a work, if, if you're creating an expressionistic work, intuition plays a very big part mm. in creating an, an expressionist work. Do you ever find that um, you, after you've painted something, because you do paint in quite quickly, so you'll finish, like you said, you did Lindy in two days. Yeah. Do you ever sort of come back a few days later and think, oh my God, how did I do that? I'm always surprised when people say, oh, that's Lindy. And I think, wow, it must be them because they, you know, you don't tell people. Only three people saw the painting before it went to the Archibald. Oh, really? And all three people said, wow, that's Lindy. And I was thrilled because none of them knew that I had painted Lindy. And so I knew it was genuine. Um, so that's always a lovely surprise. Well, so you would let, you, is it important to you to keep it really under wraps? I think so. I think so. It dilutes the tension between myself and the sitter and... You know, you don't want to be talking about something you haven't even created yet because the mm. big question is who are you painting next year? Mm. And I honestly don't have anyone for next year. But even if I did, I think I owe it to the sitter to keep that, that quiet. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe the sitter doesn't want too many people to know. And I don't think it's about, oh, well, we all know you painted Lindy, but it got rejected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that must be a bit disappointing when that happens. It is, it is. Because, uh, you, you know, luckily I don't feel too... Um, guilty because I only take up one day of the person's life um, so I think okay well I did take up one day of your life and I hope you enjoyed lunch <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry but you know that fits out of my control but yeah. I mean Lindy was a trustee Kevin Connor was a trustee they know how it works and yeah. lots and lots of paintings get rejected and, and she's an artist herself that makes a yeah, big difference I think does, don't you it think does. but I think even with Claudia she understands the process and she, you know she said I said Claudia I'll do the very best I can but the other bit's out of my control and if it gets hung great and if it doesn't get mm, hung mm, I hope that, you still talk to me yeah <laughs> that's Claudia Chan Shaw yeah. yeah so that was from tw 2017 so you you've basically been finalist 2015 17 18 and now the winner which yeah. is amazing I, talking about portraits let's talk about um a very interesting um, series of portraits you did, which are right in front of us as we're speaking. And they're of the artist David Fairbairn, who's a, a multi-award winning artist as well. Yeah. He's in Wedderburn with all those artists that are down there. Um, and um, I am just absolutely stunned at these. I just think they're incredible. And this was like 2015, 2016, I think, uh, 2015. 15. And um, so we've got three paintings in front of yep. us. One went to the one was finalist in the Kilgour, one was finalist in the Archibald, and one was finalist in the Doug Moran. That's right. Can you tell me a bit about about this process and about because yeah. I believe it was a reciprocal thing. It was. It was. Well, that was the deal. Um, what, what had happened was David had asked me to sit for him six years prior to 2015, oh, and okay. I said no. Felt a bit uncomfortable about saying no, but I just thought no. I've got to be honest. I, I just can't afford that amount of time, you know, going down to Campbelltown to sit for him. Mm. So that was okay. He's very still... flattering to be asked. It was, <laughs> it was. Um, it was only because of my nose. <laughs> wasn't interested in anything else. So I was expecting a big nose on a dark background. But he actually gave me more. He, he, he included eyes and ears and everything else. But he said, you've got a really lovely nose. I said, thanks, He's David. right, actually. <laughs> so six years went by. 
And uh, I won the Painting Denar Prize in 2014. I said, David, do you remember the question you asked me about painting or drawing my portrait or making an etching? He said, yep. I said, well, look, I've, I've won a prize and I've got some breathing space now. I'm happy to come down and sit for you on one condition. He said, what's that? I want to paint you for the Archibald. And he said, fine, that's great. So I travelled to Campbelltown six times and David came up to Sydney twice oh, and right. sat in the studio as I did for him. And it was, I have to say, it was very enjoyable. Uh, we chatted for most of the time uh, I was down there and, and uh, David created the biggest um, etching in his life. Uh, from four separate sheets of paper, which oh, then yeah. went on tour around uh, several regional galleries. Uh, I saw it when it was at Kasula, at the Kasula Powerhouse, so that was lovely. Yeah, oh, and, he's a great uh, artist. His portraits are amazing, aren't mm, they? Yeah. That's right. And he does them all from life as well, like you do. He does, do. Yeah, yeah, no photographs. And I've always been a great admirer of... I, I love the raw energy that David brings to his portraits. Mm. So then I... Um, I, I did three paintings of David. I, I seem to do that when I get a subject I like, exploring different angles and different colours. And I had an absolute ball painting uh, David. He was very relaxed. He came here with an eye infection. He was feeling a bit, uh, a bit upset about that because it hadn't cleared up in, in weeks. And so after I finished the first painting, which was the Archibald painting, I rang him and apologised and said, David, you look pretty grumpy in the painting. He said, that's good because that's how I felt. <laughs> I said, so I captured the feeling. And what was funny was he mentioned it, you know, when he arrived week one and I completely forgot about it. But he must have held this particular pose for the duration of the drawing. And it wasn't until I finished the paintings that I realised that that quality in his expression was in the paintings. Now, I wanted to talk about something in particular that you've said, and you said this when I spoke to you at the, uh, the Art Gallery of New South Wales as well, and I think it's very interesting, and that is that you, when you start the painting, it's, it's chaos, mm. and then you've got to find, it within, find the painting within that chaos. Yeah. What, um, what do you mean by that? And what, I mean, so... So, quite simply, it's a good question. I apply a lot of paint uh, with a... Um, with a paint scraper, but I also start manipulating that paint with my fingers. So during the course of the painting, the head will move slightly to the left and the right, depending on where the, the paint lands, mm. and I've got to give the painting structure. So then I will manipulate the surface with my fingers and uh, start adding, adding paint to one side of the face or subtracting paint from an ear that's way too big. Mm. And not that I'm going for accuracy, but some, some feeling of shape. And, um, it's like sculpture. Well, it is, yeah. It's like manipulating clay. You're adding clay and then you're subtracting it. And in my case, I'm adding paint and then I'm subtracting it. Mm. So while I'm working, it's incredibly chaotic. There are colours moving around very, in a very fluid fashion because, you know, oil paint's very... Um, very, it's very viscous. You know, there's mm. a viscosity to oil paint. It's also very juicy. There's a lots of things you can't control about oil paint if you're applying it with your hand. So you get if if you took one square inch of the painting or a, a, a square out of the the painting, you could see that within that square there might be 75 marks, mm. and that's the residual of all the activity that's gone on during the course of the painting. Yeah. It's not just one colour and a line. No. It might be 70 colours, 70 nuances, mm. very slight shifts from where paint meets other paint and then there's this chemical reaction that happens and it turns into a soft pink that you never anticipated because you really wanted it to be red. But it can be left there because that's a lovely passage of paint. Well, I, found, I saw that when we were looking close up on, your, on the painting of Lindy here. That oh, Sorry, what do you call that? Rakusu. The Rakusu, which is around her neck. And um, and I noticed when we were looking at that, that there was that, you know, there were all these colours that obviously mm. were sort of coming through one from the other. And it wasn't, it's not glazing. It's, no, no. It's, <laughs> it's all wet on wet. That's right. That's right. It's and, just but colours. it hasn't muddied, which is the... <laughs> well, that's because I take my glove off and put a new one on. So there are, yeah. I think, 100, 100 pairs in one pack. Yeah. And I could easily go through 100 pairs in one painting. But I could also wipe the glove with rags. So the, at the end of the day, this oh, entire okay. floor will be littered with hundreds of sheets. There's a box over there full of rags. Yeah, right. Um, 
Lucian Freud used to get all these rags from the local hospital. They were old bed sheets, and he'd tear yeah. them up into small squares, and there'd be hundreds and hundreds of these rags lying around. And they'd on end the up ground. in his paintings. That's right. And one of them, I think there's a painting with a pile of them. In, in yeah, that looked fantastic. Yeah, bed sheets from the local hospital. Is that what it was? Mine right. come, come from linen covers out of deceased estates where people have left behind sheets, towels, cushions, and everything else. Right. So then they get shredded and turned into rags. Oh, do that. The other thing about Lucian Freud that was that that I used to find that was must have been torturous for his well, apart from the fact that you had them sitting there for hours and like a hundred hours or something, I don't know, well maybe not that long, was that he'd have them sitting there even when he was painting the background. Because and I, you know what? I can understand that. I can't. Totally unnecessary. <laughs> Go <laughs> no, home. It helps like when you're doing the, you know, yeah. you're joining it to the figure. But, but we're uh, all different, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't matter. If that's what you want to do, that's great. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, everyone's got a different process, mm, don't they? Look, at one stage I thought I should have been checking Lindy's pulse. She was so quiet <laughs> and so still. I think she said about 11 words the whole time she was here. Oh, Hello, really? goodbye, glass of water, that'll do. <laughs> that was it. But that was perfect because she didn't oh, move. And you know what? Isn't that a great experience? I, there is no other experience that you can spend with another person you know, one-on-one, -on -one, you're staring at them for hours and, you know, they, well, they might not be staring back at you. Well, but, not in Lindy's no, case. No, not in Lindy's case. <laughs> but, but even when you're in love with someone when you're young, you don't do that. No, that's do right. You, know you have to be prepared to be dissected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's forensic. <laughs> it's a great, I think, I think it's just a wonderful privilege to be an artist painting somebody's portrait. Well, I think you, you really have to fall in love with your subject. You really do, whether you're painting a tree or, or you, you know, if there isn't something about that person that you admire, whether you mm. think they're absolutely exquisitely beautiful to look at or if you think they're just a beautiful human being, yeah. mostly it's about who they are as people. Yeah. I mean, if you're beautiful, that's a bonus too. But um, um, because I have a theory that if you love something for long enough, it eventually loves you back. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So I think it shows in the work. I mean, if, if you're genuinely excited about a tree or a, another human, I think it, it has echoes. Mm. I mean, Rembrandt, if, if, if someone said to me, why do you think Rembrandt's great, apart from being a technical master, I would have to say that Rembrandt is great because he felt deeply and because he was incredibly compassionate. And he copped a lot of flack for that because he was mixing with the very poor. Mm. And Rembrandt had been elevated to you know, this star artist, but he was quite happy, you know, painting the peasants and the poor, yes. but he had great compassion. Absolutely extraordinarily, his, his depth of feeling was so powerful that his paintings reflect that. Mm. So what you're getting is Rembrandt's love for that human, and that love's being reflected back to you. Mm. So it's well, very important. Well, talking about that, uh, having a connection with the sitter, I mean, the... the Obviously, the opposite of that is doing a commission, I presume, of a stranger. Uh, yeah. Do you ever do that? No. I, look, I've been asked to do a couple of commissions, and each time I've said no because um, I, I hate people telling me my hair's not that straight and my eyes aren't quite that big or my nose is much longer in your painting than it is in life. <laughs> I couldn't bear it. Yeah, and it's not something you want to do in the future? I don't think I would, unless someone said to me, if Ben Quilty said to me, I'd love you to paint my portrait. <laughs> Are you recording this? <laughs> Hi, Ben. I hope you're out there somewhere. Um, I hope he's listening. Yeah. Not a problem, because I know that Ben wouldn't say, hey, Tone, <laughs> hey, take it easy. I'm not that fat, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. And, you know, and likewise, yeah. if Ben, you know. Well, he's another artist, you know. Well, that's right. There's I mean, under thing. those circumstances, I think I could. Yeah, but I've been very yeah. lucky. I've painted other artists, Lindy, um, and, and Simon so chilled out. <laughs> I think yeah. he takes a chill pill every morning of his life. Cause <laughs> yeah, we're talking about Simon Chan. He, he loved it that much, he bought it. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah, he owns oh, the look, painting. I love that painting. It's a really great, a great likeness of him as well. I think all, they're all good likenesses mm. as well. Um, now, the other thing that you told me, which I am astonished by, is that you, <laughs> you work... With Lindy's portrait, you work for 16 hours with a 10-minute break for lunch. Mm, that's right. <laughs> I'm on a roll. What was that about? Well, it's about being in that zone. You can't possibly leave the painting. I, I think um, I don't want to leave the painting. And if I've got the energy to keep going, well, then I do keep going. And that's usually the tendency that if I start a painting, I'll start 
I'll start particularly early. So I, normally I start at 7 o'clock in the morning, knowing that by 7 o'clock at night, that's already a 12-hour shift, and that I've got the latitude to go another four till about 11 o'clock at night. And by that stage, I'm pretty wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really? ready to die. <laughs> So I, would, that, that is not a usual situation, I presume? Uh, it only happens when I'm painting very large pictures and I want the one skin and I want the one, one mark and the one energy to go through the, the entire picture. Mm. If I was to go back to the painting the day after and the day after that, not only would I t begin to tear the surface, which then starts to dry, I would um, run the risk of contaminating and making the painting look tired. Remember what I said about Lloyd Rees? He's haunting me. <laughs> yeah, to tell me that story again. I think everybody should hear that story. Well, a very long time ago, and I can't tell you when it was, I was at an exhibition and Lloyd uh, Rees came up to me and he said, Tony, I want to show you something. I was intrigued because he took his index finger and pointed to a very small area of a painting. I can't remember whose painting it was. And if I did, I wouldn't tell you anyway. <laughs> you might be listening. And, um, and Lloyd said, um, you see that area there, Tony? And it was only, you know, the size of a... A 50 cent coin. He said, that's worried paint. You never want to look worried. And I looked at him and I said, why do you say that, Lloyd? I couldn't understand what he could see. He said, well, have a look at the rest of the painting. It's fluid. It's flowing. The artist is enjoying himself. He got to this area of the face or whatever it was, a particular, and he's panicked. He's, he's repainted this many times and the painting isn't flowing anymore. And there's a real struggle going on. And that ruins the painting for me. I thought, wow. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, it might have been bigger than a 50-cent coin, you know, the whole area, maybe the size, size of a, I don't know, 100 millimetres in diameter or something. I yeah. can't remember. But it was just a particular area that really bothered him, and he could see it. Well, I think with most paintings, I mean, there's going to be a bit that bothers you, don't you think? Well, hopefully none. <laughs> none of the bit. I mean, entire paintings bother me. Because, I mean, if there is a bit that bothers you, you can get rid of that bit yeah. and turn it into a bit that doesn't bother you anymore. Because yeah, people say, well, when do you know when a painting's finished? It's when it stops irritating you. If mm. there is something about the painting, sometimes you can't see it immediately, which is why I like going back the next day and having a good look and think, what is it about the painting that troubles me? Is there an area mm. of the painting that I think I've overworked or understated or overstated? Or is there a mark in the picture which is far too aggressive or to dominant, which then means that your eye always goes back to that dominant spot. Yes. You don't want any one area of the painting to be dominating. You want the eye to travel over the whole. But don't you think that sometimes you might think it's dominating because you've been looking at it for so long, whereas other people might not? Yes, but I'm the only one that makes the decision. I don't really care whether other people think it dominates, <laughs> but if I think it dominates, then I have to get rid of it. Yes. And also... What it does is that it keeps the eye entertained over the entire piece. Not, no single mark in the painting is more important than, than the other mark. So the background of the, of the picture is just as important as the top and then the left-hand corner and the right-hand corner. Mm. So you should be able to cut the painting into four areas and find every quarter of the painting interesting. Mm. Otherwise, it's a dead area of the painting. And so um, keeping the painting alive with the mark-making is, uh, is one way of, of having the eye travel over the whole thing. Yes. And rhythm is something you can't escape. You, you know, you may not know why you're looking at a painting, but if, the, if you have rhythm in a painting, it's very difficult to say no to it. How do you achieve that to get, to get that? Just by listening to the painting and, and follow the mark making. I look for echoes in the work. So if I've got um, a circle at the top of the painting, if we use Lindy as an example, uh, a circle at the top, I'm looking for the opposite at the bottom of the picture. So in Lindy's case, it was the undulation of her gown, which I sort of echoed in the opposite direction. Mm. So I've got a mark going up, but I've also got one going in the opposite direction at the top of the, of the head. Or if I've got a line that's coming at a 45-degree angle on the shoulder, I'll exaggerate the line going in the opposite direction on the sleeve of the gown. Mm. So that anchors the whole structure, but I'm looking for those echoes in the picture. So if the background starts to become flat, I'll activate the background by introducing a lighter tone or a darker tone to take the eye back into the corner. Yep. Um, so there's no, there's no formula, but it's what I look for when I'm creating a work of art. And also being prepared to distort or exaggerate something in order to achieve that. At the expense of any 
you know, really nice quality in the painting. So if I think, well, that's a nice ear, well, I have to destroy that ear in order to, you know, create another shape. And if that's mm. what the painting demands, then I have to do that. Mm. So you need to sacrifice things along the way or introduce a mark that's not there because the painting demands it. I mean, sometimes the marks on my cheeks uh, are a little bit heavy, heavy duty and the mm. sitter doesn't have those marks, but they're important to the composition of the painting. So, so even there. within, say, a portrait, you would introduce something to, in order to, yeah. to, to balance it out or to create a rhythm? Well, the lines might be there, but I'll exaggerate them. And sometimes I'll leave, leave areas completely bland because there's enough activity. Like if you look at the third portrait of David, the portraits either side have got marks on the forehead, but with the central one, I've got so much activity in the hair and the lines that are giving shape to the hair that I found that putting marks on his forehead would be far too distracting because there's enough activity at the top of the head and it's very pronounced because the background's lighter so now the head's jumping away from the, from the, thing, from the background. Yeah, that's right. Well, that, and that's interesting because the background has got, I think the background has got a lot to do with what happens in the face. Yeah, well, those colours are also repeated. So that's another, another way of repeating rhythm is, is echoing those colours throughout the whole painting. Mm. So in Lindy's case, I was very careful to drag the colour of her face back down into her fingers, which is a logical thing to do anyway. But they're incredibly crucial because they fracture the whole mass of that brown gown that she's wearing. Yeah. And without those hands, uh, it would be monotonous. Now, we mentioned, you mentioned earlier that you use vinyl. Now, this is something... When I was at Salon de Refuse at SH Urban Gallery, I saw your painting hanging there, and I thought, oh, I wonder if that's gouache or, you know... And then I went up closer and it said, vinyl on paper. Mm. I have never heard of vinyl. Well, in 1986 and uh, in 1988, while I was doing the Triangle Workshop, I was using the French product called gouache, which is simply watercolour plus white. So if you add white to watercolour... It's like you've built a brick wall. It's completely opaque. Yeah. And so there's no, um, there's no transparency. So mm. you're killing the paper. The whole idea of watercolour is that you let some of the white come through and it acts as white or as light. Mm. Now, I'm not interested in external light. So gouache was a perfect medium for me in the late 80s because it blocked out all the light. It was completely opaque. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. But there is a but. The but was that... Because I changed my mind during the course of the painting and I work wet on wet, gouache has got this terrible habit of becoming mud because you, the colours don't set. They are, the minute you add water to, to the painting, it then takes on a previous layer. So you've got uh, raw umber underneath it. You're trying to put a light colour red over the top of it and the red combines with the umber. So what you have essentially is a particularly flat painting and without very little effort becomes mud. So I worked with mud for many years and felt completely dissatisfied. I was creating paintings that I was happy with, but there was no shift. I couldn't get any, any drama in, in the work and everything looked like the, the lights had been turned off yeah. with gouache. So I thought there must be something else out there. So I then switched to acrylic, which I hated because acrylic's, acrylic's really great for people who are butting colour up against colour, so the colour field paintings really loved acrylic, and mm. it was designed, I think invented, for that whole movement. But I was looking for shifts, and acrylic wasn't giving me enough shift. The other thing that happens with acrylic is you'll put down the colour, and a, half an hour later, that colour drops. So totally everything starts to drop and flatten out. So it didn't suit me. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's not for me. Then I went to Absolute Matte, which was another product that was being developed in Australia, and I had the same problem with that. It was drying very, very flat, and again, again getting those shifts wasn't possible. It was much more permanent than gouache, and I'm certainly not a, a watercolourist because watercolour is too fragile, and I really want to paint with my hands, and watercolours is far too delicate. Mm. So none of those things really worked for me. But then I discovered vinyl, and vinyl is the perfect thing for me because it dries matte, you can overwork it, which is something you couldn't do with gouache. It, uh, it, it keeps its sort of tonal level reasonably well. It drops a bit, but not as much as acrylic. Mm. And it looks like a gouache, 
Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Which is what, that's what I thought it was when I saw that's it. That's right. That's right. But you could ah. never, ever do in gouache what I do with vinyl. Now, vinyl was around in the 1960s. Susan Rothenberg used it quite a lot with all the horse paintings. And I really stumbled across it many, many years ago, didn't quite know how to use it and then left it behind and went back to it uh, about um, mm. 15 years ago and started using it. And there are very few places in Sydney that sell it, but um, I think they bring it in just for me <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know too many people. But it's becoming popular and more and more, I've been yeah. told that more and more people are discovering it. Well, another thing I'm interested in with artists is whether they um, suffer from procrastination in the studio. Do you find that you, you know, sort of cleaning up a lot <laughs> before you start work? Do you have any problem in that way? Um, the answer is no, because uh, I know I've got a long day ahead of me and, and I can't add procrastination to it because then <laughs> it becomes 27 hours. So what I do is... I really just jump in. Do you? Without yeah. any prep drawing, without any mapping out. And that's why the head often ends up off the canvas mm. because I just lay down the colour, the bulk of the shape, and then work out whether the head's going to fit or not. Now, if it leaves the surface, that's okay too because the bulk of the expression is in the face. I'm not terribly interested in the hair. Mm. Sometimes it matters. I mean, in Lindy's case, it does matter. I wanted that sculptural feeling of the the cap-like quality because she's got this beautiful line. Um, and so it really mattered in her case. In David's case, a bit more haphazard, a bit more organic, and yeah. so I didn't care. So landing on the page for the first time with a large amount of paint uh, means that I've really got to swim fast or I'm going to drown. Yeah. And I know there's 16 hours ahead of me. <laughs> so <laughs> you're, not, I, you're not precious at the beginning? I'm not precious at the end. <laughs> In fact, I'm not precious. No, no, because I'm prepared to throw it away. Yeah. It's do or die. You really need to be on the attack. And um, if it doesn't work or you've landed in the wrong spot, and sometimes it does, well, then I have to move the whole anatomy to the right or take it to the left or be prepared to lose the feet or lose part of the head. Mm. Um, is that a problem? When you're working wet on wet, do you have to scrape it off? Is that what you have to do? Yeah, you do. Or yeah. I can just add paint over the top of old, old paint. But you know, you've got to be careful you don't get too thick because then it becomes, it becomes more than chaos. It becomes impossible to work with. Mm. So thick paint can be problematic. I love thick paint because it's, I love its texture. Mm. I'm interested in texture. Going back to 1968 where I put all that paint on those rooftops. Well, talking about thick paint... Um, you've got, you're not allowed to hand in the Archibald, into the Archibald with, when it's still wet. No, so right. how long before entry do you feel that you have to finish? Well, in an ideal world, I like having the painting done and dusted about a month before it's due because it needs to dry. And I'm well aware of the fact that I would never hand in a, a wet painting. But in Lindy's case, I had the luxury of her saying to me, can we do it now? And that was just music to my ears because I thought, now? What, six months before it's due? Not six minutes before it's due? I thought, great, let's do it. When I speak to an artist whose partner is also an artist, I'm always interested in hearing how that might affect their own practice or increase their own creativity in a mm. way. Do you bounce off each other, you and Jeanette Seabold? Yeah, we do, we do. Um, uh, visits to the studios are by invitation only. <laughs> that took me a little while to get used to when we were first married. I thought I could just walk in. And um, <laughs> Well, actually, we should just point out that Jeanette's studio is identical size to yours, but further in the, in the back. Yeah, probably 15 metres yeah. away from yeah. mine. Yeah, through the back door there. Yeah, right. And um, so that took a little while getting used to it, but I understood, because I'm, I'm so much more comfortable with people walking into my space and having a look. I'm not comfortable with anyone walking in while I'm in the middle of a painting. That's never happened. So all my windows, are, I've got six windows, but they're all blocked out. You wouldn't know there were windows in this building. Oh. Okay, and that's right. because if Jeanette's walking up and down during the course of the day, I can't afford to have any eye contact. So the back door's closed, the front door's closed, and everything is blocked out. So it's just me, the painting, and the one drawing. So um, I can be distracted by noises, and, and, and certainly if somebody's walking by. But at, you know, at the end of the session, and, and only if I ask Jeanette to come in and give comment, and only if it's positive, of course... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to know about her negative stuff. 
she'll come in and uh, offer suggestions. <laughs> and uh, more often than not, this, the suggestions and the observations are very good. And I think, yep, you're right, I hadn't seen that. Or she might make comment about something that she doesn't like. And if I agree with her, that's fine. But if I don't agree with her, it doesn't mean I go out and destroy the painting. I just leave the painting exactly where it is mm. because... I don't agree with what she's saying. Yeah. It's only her opinion. That's right. And it is only an opinion, and that's how it should be treated. But I take, I, I take the opinion of very few people because you can, be, um, you can go off the rails. Now, also, I want to talk to you about social media because you haven't got a huge social media presence. The only place I could find you was Facebook, and you actually don't really post anything on there. Other people tag you, and you end up on, you know, on your page. So I suspect you're not an active user of social media. Do you? Uh, how do you feel about that? Have you actively <laughs> avoided it, or is it just something you just don't think about? I guess I see it as a distraction. Um, you know, if I started doing all that sort of stuff, I know. It, I would spend less time out in the bush mm. or less time in the studio. I'm simply not that interested mm. in mm. it. Nothing against it. Other people use it. Maybe mm. I should do a little bit of it. But, uh, and there's no danger of me ever becoming an addict. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was saying to you, you either become an addict or you don't, you know, you don't engage as no. much. Um, you, what, because it's not your personality to... to... I just think I want to spend more time in the studio and I know that it's going to take me away. And anything that takes me away from the studio... Um, is um, uh, I don't really aspire to it. Tony, congratulations again on your well-deserved award and good luck with travelling around the country, um, following Lindy Lee's painting around <laughs> and, um, and also I'm sure everybody in those communities are going to be interested in hearing what you've got to say. Well, thank you, Maria. What a wonderful artist and well-deserved winner of this year's Archie. If you haven't been yet, try and get to the Art Gallery of New South Wales or catch the show as it travels around the nation. It's really worth seeing. There are links on the website about the show as well as about other things we talked about in our conversation and I'll be uploading a short video of Tony in his studio soon to the website and to the Talking With Painters YouTube channel. Also, thanks to everyone who's been reviewing and rating the show on iTunes. It's made such a difference to getting the show out to more people. Thanks again for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. And more often than not, um, I don't have any music while I'm working. But if I do have some background noise, it's, it's always of some, in some foreign language. I just love the, the whole mm, sort of the vibration. Or, you know, if I'm sitting in here silence, there are plenty of birds in the tree above me. And there's this great cacophony of sound going on at the back, you know, in the background, uh, which is often, uh, I don't actually need it. But it's just nice to have bird calls in the background. 